0: It is a great joy I invite you this morning to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at this morning Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25 through 32 as we continue our study through this majestic letter this morning. I'm going to read here in a moment uh, Ephesians 4.1, then I'm going to pick up again at uh, verse 17 and read down, verse, down to verse 32 and uh, pray for God's mercy as we study together. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Stand with a sense of awe and wonder as we read the book that also reads us. And as we know that in the scripture and in the scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now down to verse 17, now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. O Lord God Almighty, we thank You for Your perfect and precious Word, Oh Lord, we pray this morning in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, even as we sing Amen this morning, we know that You are the great Amen God, so be it. You are the one that can bring whatever You desire to pass. You are the one who, according to Your purposes of sovereign grace, has poured out Your mercy on a people. You are the one we look to this morning. Because if we look to you faithfully and rightly, if we learn Christ, we also look at one another. And with a sense of awe, we say, brother, sister, words that were purchased for us by the blood of Christ. And it's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you would have asked most groups in the history of the world, no matter what culture they were, why are you here? Why do you exist? What is your purpose? In almost all of them, you would have heard something like, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I am a husband, I am a wife, I am a father, I I am a mother, I am a friend, I am from this place, and the reason I exist is to be faithful to these relationships, to build this place where I am. But things have radically changed. In our own culture, when that question is asked, who are you? What is the purpose of your life? Why do you exist? The answers aren't external to us. They almost always involve us at the center of it. You see, the core of thinking in most cultures in the history of the world is that I am to give my life for the good of others, family, community, But today we embrace a self-expressionism. We answer that question, it sounds something like this. I I am someone who likes this, that, or the other thing. I exist to to live my life and to become who I am, to, to express who I am. And people today are most often people who chafe at the idea that my life exists For the sake of someone else. For the sake of something else. No. It's for me. I have to express myself. I have to be me to the world. I have to do me. You see, the core of this is a self-referential, self-expressionism. I exist for myself. I exist to be Me? You see this in all kinds of ways that are almost mind-boggling. Until very recently, in almost any culture, if a man had gone to his doctor and said, I have a problem. I am a man, but uh, I feel like a woman, but I'm trapped in a man's body. The doctor would have said, you know, that is a problem. We need to send you to get help so the way you think can match your physical reality, your bodily reality. Makes perfect sense. There's something more important than what you think. There, there's a reality outside of you. There are, there are facts that you have to adjust to. But today, often, the man goes to the doctor and says, I have a problem. I, I, I'm, I, I am a man who, who, uh, who feels trapped In a woman's body, we'd say something like that is a problem. So let's change your body to align with your mind. Let's change your body according to how you think. You see, one says there is a truth outside of you. There are facts that you have to come into line with. And the other says you decide what's true for you. You see, most people here this morning would not embrace or affirm that sort of gender self-expressionism, but what I want you to understand is that you and I don't live in a vacuum. And that sort of self-referential way of seeing the world affects all of us, and it comes out in all kinds of ways. That we tend to think the reason I am here is to so so I can feel this, or so so I can get these accolades, or so I can, we we all tend to drift in that direction, influenced by the culture around us, the, the worldview that we live and exist in. But what I want you to see this morning is that in Ephesians, Paul, this this prisoner unjustly imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, this prisoner who writes to these churches in Ephesus, that what he is calling them to, that we've seen from the very beginning of the letter, that he is calling them to understand that they have been swept in to a counterculture that transcends all other cultural understandings. You see, what I talked about traditional culture, most cultures in the world, even though they had a sen- have a sense of self-sacrificialness. It's not enough. You see, if you say I exist for my family, I exist for my community. But that's the end of it all. Many honor and shame cultures, many sort of cultures that understand the value of sacrificing for your people, draw the lines around that particular people. And therefore, look at others and to say, we are better. We are superior. We harm you because we have to protect our own. He says, I'm calling to you something more than that. But he's certainly calling us to something more than the idea that what matters most is us. What matters most is what I think. What, what matters most is what I feel. What matters most is me. In every instance. And so I'll walk away from any responsibility because I've got to do what's best for me. He's saying, no, there's there's a counterculture that, that, that nobody else is a part of. That you are in the world to exhibit, to display, to be a light. For people to wonder with bewilderment, why do those people act like that? to the traditional cultures, most cultures in the world, to look at and say, why don't they draw the lines around the ethnicity and, and, and cultural standing and, and class the, w- the way we do? That, that's a group of people who just erases all those lines and invites anybody in that circle. And, and, and to those people over here that, that say, it's all about me. I've got to look out for me. I've got to do what's best for me. Well, what is this people who's willing to sacrifice themselves at, at almost any cost for one another and all Also even for their enemies. What is a people like this? Ephesians four ten, chapter three, verse ten says that people, that dividing wall destroying people, that people who can be described as one, even though they are Jew and Gentile and all kinds of deceased, that people is the manifold wisdom of God in the world. That people is a a new family, a a new culture, that that has been birthed by cosmic and ultimate realities. And the existence of this people who put this reality first doesn't harm those around them. It helps those around them. A family of adopted children of God Jew and Gentile and and everything in between. A a group of people that keep being described as one. One household. One body. One new man. What do you mean one? They're Jew and Gentile. They're rich and poor. What do you mean one? One. He keeps thundering through this letter with this oneness. And in chapter 4, he starts calling us to, to understand not only who we are as the church, but that we would walk it out, that we would live it, that we would become more in reality who we are. That's what he's referring to in verse 25 when he says, therefore, he's referring back to all that has been said, and he is calling us here to a new gospel unity. He's been explaining it again and again. He is relentless in confronting the way we tend to divide up based on outer distinctions. He is at war with those who would confuse the church for a community where ethnic and cultural distinctions would reign as priority. He's at war with that. And he calls us to walk in this new gospel unity as a people, meaning no matter where you are from, you are a people who have learned Christ. Not just about Christ. You have learned Christ. Personally. Personally. All of that people. And therefore, you are called to truth as it is in Jesus. Jesus is the truth. He calls us to walk in the truth. And all of the truth is to be understood as it is in Jesus. And in light of that, as a people who are learning, who learn Christ and are learning Christ, and one day will be forever with Christ, we here and now are putting off the old self making sense of the world apart from Christ. And we are putting on the new self. And it changes not only our eternal destination, but this new self redefines and reorients every category in our lives. Now, the section we're looking at this morning calls for five characteristics to be put off. And it calls for five characteristics to be put on. And it gives a motivation for each. But you will not understand what's being said here. If you think that these are sort of random characteristics, sort of picked out of the air. If these are just sort of haphazard characteristics he's pointing to here. And you will not understand if you think that you are the primary reference point of the reason that you're being called to these characteristics. Now, God in Christ is the primary reference point, And those around you. You see, all of these thoughts, words, and deeds He is calling us to have something in common. So to understand, we need to look at the big picture, first of all, of Ephesians 4, 25-32. Look with me there. Put off individualism by putting on gospel unity. That's the biggest category. We're being called away from seeing our lives as just about us, or our people, or, or our group, or those who look like us and sound like us, the way we want to segment out the world according to ourselves. He's calling us away from that. He says this is a people who have been swept into gospel unity and we are to put it on. We are to be self-conscious about cultivating this unity. And so what I want you to see, first of all, is the things that we are to put off. Verse 25, lies. Verse 26, sinful anger. Verse 28, stealing. Verse 29, corrupting speech. Verse 31, bitterness. All of these things are self-centered. All of these things have a root in pride. And if I were to ask you, how could you destroy the unity of a church? If you were to say, what is Satan's plan for a church? That it'd be marked by lies? Sinful, self-referential anger? Stealing? Corrupting speech that harms Each other, and oh yeah, bitterness, often unspoken, gnawing and eating at the insides. Do you see this? These are the things that tend to destroy unity. This is not randomly put here. He is still talking about the reality that the church is to be a people that no matter how different come together and are family and be marked by unity. And so you've got to put off all of the things that tend to destroy unity. And all of the things that, that, if you just see the world in light of you, kind of make sense. We'll talk about why do you lie? Why do you have sinful anger? The answers to all of those things is because you center you. But notice the put-ons. Put-on, truth, verse 25, righteous anger, verse 26, or we could say trust. In verse 26, work in verse 28, edifying speech in verse 29, kindness and forgiveness in verse 32. All of these things are other centered, which is a mark of humility, not pride. And all of these things tend to promote unity of people that gather around the truth, whose anger is righteous because it's not rooted in themselves, of people who who work and labor A people who edify one another with their words. And a people who are marked by kindness and forgiveness. You show me a people like that and I'll show you a people that are being brought together. But notice the motivations. Verse 25. You are members of one another. Verse 27. Do not give place to the devil. Verse 28. Help anyone in need. Verse 29. Grace to those who hear. Verse 32. Christ has forgiven you. All of the you's in this section again are y'all. These motivations, they're all bigger than us. They, they, they call us to, to see the other people around us. They are oriented toward your concern for others. All of the motivations he gives here have to do with relationships. It starts with relationship with God in Christ, but cascades down to the relationships we have with God all others who are in Christ. What I want you to see here is that this is all about cultivating a community that is is marked by this this good news unity that's animated by Christ. Not selfish, self-focused desires. You'll note that in verse 25, the first verse that we're looking at, it says that we are one of another. In verse 32, the section ends with one another. All that he's talking about here has to do with one another. Why is that so important? Because we, we so often, even read our, read our, read our Bibles, as though the world revolves around us. As if all of this is here just so I can live a little bit better on Monday and be a little bit more happy and a little bit more content. But here's the truth. If you read the Bible in that way as if it's all about you, you're going to be less content and less happy. Because you're turning the Bible into something that it's not. And that is a book centered on you. If you read the Bible rightly, you're going to think about yourself less. You're going to think about Christ most. And you're going to understand that not only do you exist for one another, but there's going to be a sense of thankful desperation. That you would say, without Christ, I don't know what I would do, but I have Christ. And without the people of Christ in the church, I don't know what I would do, but you have the people of Christ in the church. Learning Christ is learning to love what Christ loves. His body. His household. His church. To fail to love the church, the body of Christ, is an assault on the head of the church, Christ. The second person of the Trinity, the triune God, came and took on flesh to, to, to birth a people called the church. He calls it the fullness of Him who fills all in all. He calls the existence of the church a display in a fallen world of His manifold wisdom. Putting on the new self is becoming who you are. And becoming who you are involves living in His family community called the church, and self-consciously living in that community to promote gospel unity. The quarterback of Alabama's football team is a guy named Jalen Milroe. He got benched a while back, and evidently the week of the benching, they say he didn't take it too well. But during the week, he thought about something, and what he thought about was the slogan of his high school football team, which was "Family." And family was an acronym that says this. Forget about me. I love you. And he shows up at that game. And there was no bigger cheerleader at that game for the guys who were playing in his place and everything else than him. He said it reoriented my thinking. And he would even say it was a good thing he got benched so he could remember why he was on That team. You show me a team of people who are so committed to the team that they forget about getting the praise or the place or the starting position. This is about us. I'll show you a team that's going to be way better than they could ever have been with a bunch of individuals wondering about if it's about them. Church family, one of the things the gospel liberates you to do is to be self forgetful. We say, forget about me. I love you. First of all, to Christ, but second of all, to the community that He's given us. Well, let's look at each one of these things quickly. These are all underneath, put off individualism and put on gospel unity. First of all, we are to put off lies by putting on truth. The word by there is very specific because you you, you don't just stop doing something. There always has to be a replacement. You know, I talking about football earlier. They will watch the game film this week and the coach isn't going to say, look, you missed that block. Stop it. Now, I say stop it a lot. But he's not just going to say that. He's going to say, here's what you did. Here's what you should have done. We're going to work on that, what you should have done. We're going to replace what you did with what you do. And if we do that enough, we will put off and put on. We think about these things oftentimes in a vacuum. This one morning, we're going to wake up and, and we're not going to do this thing that we've habitually committed ourselves to do. You have to replace it with something. Even if you're trying to lose weight, you'll notice this. I'm just going to eat less. You will eat less if you also do some other things, even if the exercise is not helping you lose the weight. The exercise is reminding you of what you're trying to accomplish. And that's the way it works. Put off when I would normally eat a snack. Get on the treadmill, whatever. Put off and put on a replacement value. Put off lies by putting on truth. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, having put off or thrown away falsehood, let each one of you or y'all speak the truth with his neighbor. That's a command. Speak the truth with his neighbor or with one another. Some translations translate it. For... Or the word could be translated since we are members of one another. Okay? Put away something. Falsehood, lies. Why do we lie? Self protection. Lack of courage. We had a child who was lying a lot in our home years ago, and we were trying to figure out how to get through to him. And you know, I, I never are you more like Satan than when you lie. He's the father of lies. Teach them that truth and, and work with them. And, and, and we're thinking about what do you put on, okay? Put on truth, yeah, but, but how, can we, how can we concretize that in, in a way? And so Judy comes home one day, she says, you know, you lie because you lack courage to accept responsibility. So let's just start working on courage. So we did. So anytime there's something I didn't think he wanted to do, do it. Make yourself do it. Then we start tying that to the way truth works and the way God calls us to do things that we wouldn't do. But they're true. And finally, we started having a breakthrough. But it wasn't until we started helping Him understand what to put on. By the way, this is rooted in Zechariah 8.16, which says... These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. It's a picture of the, what's called in Zechariah 8-3, the, the city of truth. It is Zechariah commanding the return exiles on how they are to relate to one another. They are to relate to one another In truth, and we are to be a community of people who live in this outpost of the kingdom, this city of truth, in the midst of this city, and we are to speak truth to our neighbor. But notice the motivation. The motivation is not just because I said so, the motivation is not because if you lie, you will harm yourself. Here's the motivation for we are members of one another. Here's the motivation. Think about your brothers and sisters. You're in Christ. Christ is the one who's called the truth. You are a community in Christ. You are members of one another. You are not free agents in this work. It's because y'all are in Him. Imagine the members of your body lying to other parts of your body. Right? That actually happens when your body's not functioning properly. Right? Your brain is not working, so you do things you wouldn't do. But, but imagine your brain saying, you know, there's a snake on the ground. I'm going to play a trick on the foot, and I'm not going to let it know that it should be worried. Right? Your body mutiny against itself. Does that just affect the foot when you get bit by the snake? No. It affects the whole body. You are members of one another. You see, that's the way a body works. Uh, that's, that's not a new way of explaining that. One of the church fathers, Chrysostom, said... If the eye sees a serpent, does it deceive the foot? If the tongue tastes what is bitter, does it deceive the stomach? Plain speech and honest dealing must characterize Christ's church. Otherwise, it tears itself to pieces. You say, well, I mean, but people don't lie on one another in the church. (laughs) Really? Really? These are here because these are real things that we have to be self conscious about. We must commit ourselves to be people of the truth who speak the truth to one another. But secondly, put off sinful anger by putting on righteous anger. Verse 26 Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, be angry. Now, He is not commanding you to to try to find things to be angry about. It's a passive command, meaning it's permissive. We all get angry, and there are some things that are worth getting angry about. If you see some of the things we see in the midst of these wars and innocence and children being harmed, and you don't have a welling up sort of righteous indignation about that, then you are dishonoring God because you don't understand the the beauty and glory and wonder of image bearers and how we ought to treat them and respect life. If you don't have a welling up within you about the way we destroy life in the womb, that's a problem. There ought to be a, a righteous indignation about that. But he's not saying you have to work up things to be angry about. It's passive. You do get angry. Some things you should get angry about. But the warning is to be angry and do not sin. Because it is really easy when you well up with a sense of emotion to sin. You see, sinful anger is very different than righteous anger. Righteous anger has its root in God, what God says about the world, about His name and His character. Sinful anger is all about us. I've been slighted. I've been wounded. I should be treated better. Now, here's the truth. We often get less angry about this and more angry about this. I don't get many counseling appointments about righteous anger. No, when we get angry, we stop caring about the truth. You are married and you've been married long enough. You've had fights with your spouse and probably you say things in the midst of those fights just to get a dig in that you know aren't true, but you don't care about it in that moment. You want to win in that moment. You want to make them feel bad because somehow, someway, that'll make you feel better. It doesn't work. Be angry and do not sin. By the way, the, we understand this, this, this be angry by better by how it explains how we are to, to deal with it, what we are to put on. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. By the way, this is a quotation of Psalm 4.4. It's a psalm of David. He says, in your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. This is David in distress crying out to God. He realizes that, that he must leave the problem to God. And in this psalm, he goes on to speak of being in his bed and then going to sleep. It's a picture. I can have righteous anger and still sleep. Why? Because ultimately, I leave that to God. Ultimately, that's about Him. His name. He will vindicate His name. But The idea is, is when it's about me, I know that I can't control things and I can't sleep. So He says here, Do not let the sun go down on your anger, just like the psalmist David here. Everything must ultimately be left to God. Repent of your sinful, self-focused anger. This is very practical advice that is an expression of God-centered self-control. Calvin says sinful anger can be understood in three categories. Personal slights perceived or actual you realize most of the things you get really angry about aren't re- real? If you go around the world trying to perceive slights, everything sounds like a slight. Most of the time, it's not. Perceived slights are actual. Secondly, he says, it's anger beyond the bounds, meaning that it is not a settled, righteous anger. It is a temperamental anger. And thirdly, Calvin says... Anger should be against our sins, but oftentimes we turn it against our neighbor. Misdirected anger. If we do something wrong, a lot of times we want to start talking about what somebody else does wrong. When I'm teaching my kids sin when they're really little, all of them try to pull this, right? Look, you, you sinned in this instance. Yes, Daddy, but we all sin. For all sin to fall short of the glory of God. You've sinned too. Not right now, I haven't. I'm about to. Right? He's, we do that as adults too. Almost all the time in churches where there's somebody who does something really scandalous, one of the things they'll try to do is when it starts being uncovered, point at other things and say, oh, look at this and look at what that person's doing and, and I don't like this around misdirected anger. We do that all the time. That's sinful anger. That's about me. That's not about God. That's not about truth. That's, that's about my feelings. Verse 27, here is the, the motivation and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, now, the idea here, this is a command, a present active command. Don't open the door for the devil, the father of lies, the slanderer here. You see, nursing sinful anger does not give us control, it lets us know we aren't in control. When we aren't in control, we we torment ourselves about these things. And this gives us a foothold to the evil one. And oftentimes we respond with the anger that we're nursing by lashing out at other people. And so we join the devil in becoming the accuser of the brethren. The open door, the foothold provided by an individual has a destructive pathway through the body. Emotions are a good gift from a sovereign God, but they are to be exercised under the sovereignty of God. He moves from words and attitudes to thoughts and actions. Look at verse 28. Put off stealing by putting on work. Verse 28, let the thief steal no longer. It's a command, present active command. But rather let him labor, let him diligently work. It's another command. Doing honest work with his hands, so that, here's the purpose, the motivation here, he may have something to share with anyone in need. Why does somebody steal? Because they say, I deserve more than I'm getting. A lot of people steal at work because they feel mistreated, they they feel like they're not getting enough. Oh, I'll just take this, I deserve that, I've earned that. We want and we do not have, and so we do all kinds of sinful things. James says, which leads even to murder, but one of the things we do when we want and we do not have is we steal. He says, put off taking from others to provide for yourself, but the amazing thing is what he says, put on. He says here to put on labor, doing honest work with your own hands. Scripture calls us to have a, a good work ethic, to, to work hard. But, but the, the picture here is, is not simply to work so you can get more, but to work to give. We are to put on hard work so we can take from ourselves and give to others. Many of us, one of the great struggles of our life is being generous. Because we feel as though we're going to detract from our own lives if we are really generous. Yeah, we do feel that way. That's the way of the old man. Yeah. The gospel calls us to a new way of thinking. A way that says, take up your cross and follow me. Why? Because that's the only pathway to true joy. A Bible that says, Christ went to the cross for the joy that is set before him. One of the things that we have with our possessions is an opportunity to display the gospel and declare that we believe in the logic of the gospel. We believe that it will be better for us if we care more for others than we care about our own immediate gaining more for ourselves. We are to work with our church family in mind. I've known people who have done this my whole life. I've known people who were praying for a raise at work. And you think, praying for a raise at work? Oh man, they're just caught up in... No, they were praying for a raise at work because they committed themselves before God. If they get a raise, they're going to give all of that raise to the work of the gospel. Or, or this doesn't even include a paycheck. You, you could say, I am choosing not to work a, a, a formal job. I'll have less money, but what I'm going to do is apply my lives to volunteering in the work and ministry of the church so we will have less, and I will give of myself so people have more. You see, the motivation here is that he may share, have something to share with anyone in need. Notice the motivation. This only makes sense if the Gospel is true. Army used to kind of promote itself as be a part of this grand mission and be a part of this thing. And then a few years ago, they know the the winds of the way things are. And their slogan a few years ago was an army of one. Here's what we can do for you. No, we're being called away from that. All of these motivations are about seeing our brothers and sisters. Next, verse 29. Put off corrupting speech by putting on edifying speech. Let no corrupting talk comes out of your mouth. The word corrupting here is worthless, rotten, putrid, corrupting, polluting. They think of a the, the old saying: a rotten apple ruins the barrel. This corrupting talk, these words that tear down, corrupting talk or corrupting words come out of your mouths. That's the put off. But strongest contrast here: only such as good for building up as fits the occasion. The corrupting words are put off. The building up words are put on. The words that do not cause harm, but help. Now, this doesn't mean that you should only speak nicey-nice words. Sometimes the most harmful thing you can say is something nicey-nice. Flattery is not something the Bible ever endorses. Superficiality is not what the Bible endorses. Sometimes to, to speak the words that build up, They have to be difficult words spoken in love. The reason we settle for the superficial is because we don't love deeply enough. The reason you'll say things to your children that you won't say to other people is because you know and love them and you want so much good for them. And that's good. That's right. But we are called to this thing where we love one another so much that we're willing to speak the truth. But that includes a people who are willing to affirm one another. I meet all kinds of people in the church. We act like we're afraid to affirm uh, in one another things that ought to be affirmed. I mean, if I just say something positive about them, it'll go to their head. We just shouldn't. No. No, you're not God. No, you know what's going to go to somebody's head? Speak the truth, whatever it is. No flattery, no makeup stuff, but speak the truth. He says here, as fits the occasion, according to the need of the moment. Whatever the need is, speak the truth. Speak words that are true. Let words that build up come out of your mouth. You speak these words, it says, look at the end of it, that, here's the purpose, the motivation, it may give grace to those who hear Your words, he says, are not your own. God has given you those words to glorify Himself and to build others up. It's transformative when you stop seeing your words as something you have for yourself. So much destruction is done when we think the reason I have words is to make myself feel better about myself. And then it makes sense to rip people up and tear people down. And right, you, I just speak my mind. I put everybody in their place. I, 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 you know, I have to vent like everybody else. Stop it with the venting stuff. Okay? Let, let, let's call it what it is. It's corrupt speech. Right? You want to vent? Go to God. You want to speak direct words, truth, and love? Go to one another. You want to speak words of affirmation about what you see of God's grace in their life? Go to one another. But finally, he says, put off bitterness by putting on kindness and forgiveness. Now, now with this first section here, there is a, a, a traveling from inward to outward. This is the way it works. Let all bitterness, this is a, a command here, let all bitterness, let all prickly sullenness, let let this hidden resentment, let that welling up inside of you, you you, you see somebody and you just think, oh, I remember what they said to me that time. let, let Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Now, do you see what happened there? Bitterness. Wrath is this indignation that that sort of trips an impulse. Clamor is an outcry when you start saying things out loud because of this bitterness. And then slander is public defamation because you no longer care whether it's true or not. You just want to tear somebody down because of the bitterness that is inside of you. This is a falsehood and anger cocktail that spills out of the mouth. And it sounds like a complaining about others, but the Bible makes it clear it's a complaining about God. People complain about Moses, and God comes to them and says, why do you complain about me? Bitterness, ending in slander. Let this be put away from you, along with malice. The wickedness is what it's referring to this as. Now, verse 32, this is the put on. By the way, these are to the same people. You have a welling up of bitterness at somebody. that You feel the impulse of of wrath and and you want to have clamor and and slander because that will make you feel better if you tear them down. You put that away. How do you do it? Be kind to one another. Out of your way to be kind to those whom it would be easy for you to be better with. Be kind and tender hearted. Forgiving one another. This is a gospel cocktail. And it always ends in forgiveness. When we look at one another and we say, I can be kind to you no matter what. How do I know that's true? Because I can even love my enemies. I can bless those who persecute me. And whatever I've made out of this situation with a brother and sister in Christ, it's nothing like that. I will commit myself to be kind to you, to be tender hearted, to have a a heart that is sensitive to you, and to forgive you. What's the motivation? As God in Christ forgave you. What's the limit to that? Now, finally, there's one more thing. If you'll notice, not on the chart, was verse 30. We skip verse 30 as we work through. Because verse 30 breaks the pattern. There's no put on in verse 30. What we have in verse 30 is just simply a warning. A warning that living in this way that we've seen marked by lies and sinful anger and stealing and corrupt speech and bitterness is becoming who you're not in Christ. It's a warning that we are living opposed to who we are if we are in Christ. It points to a gospel promise, a gospel reality, and says your life is living in contradiction to it. Look at verse 30. When you put off gospel unity by putting on individualism, and we can put sinful individualism here, verse 30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, you say, well, what does grieving the Holy Spirit of God mean? Well, you don't have to be an expert to say, that's really bad. The third member of the Trinity, the triune God, grieving God, The word means distress, sorrow. Projecting these terms in which we can understand onto God. Grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Notice the the Holy Spirit is a personal being. You can't grieve a force. The very Holy Spirit of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit that comes up and opens our eyes to the Gospel of Christ. You grieve the Holy Spirit. How? By living among one another and sowing disunity. Doesn't make any sense. You are all those who were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, he says. This is, this is living in the opposite direction of God's unifying new creation people when you live like this. When you embrace these qualities that harm the community and produce factiousness and disunity. By the way, the Holy Spirit is de- described as leading us, Romans 8.14. Speaking and teaching, John 16.13. Helping us in prayer, John 8.26. Holy Spirit can be lied to, Acts 5.3 and 4. We can quench the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. We can resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51. But here, the warning is about grieving the Holy Spirit. Do you think Paul is committed to building a people who understand that they desperately need each other and are to live together in a radical, scandalous unity that wouldn't make any sense apart from him? You see, these characteristics are never... They're they're not mere moralistic assertions. This is not some checklist of do's and don'ts that He calls us to. These are not some abstract standard. This is an ethic that we are called to based on love and by sovereign grace alone, relationship with God that has been brought about by the sovereign plan of the Father, the atoning blood of the Son, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit the one who has come to seal us for the day of redemption. Oh no. Rather, be a people of truth, a people of righteous anger, that trust in God, that can leave it with God, a people who work to give to others in need, a people of edifying speech, who spread grace, a people of kindness and forgiveness. After all, we are only His people because Christ has forgiven us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for Your perfect and precious Word. I thank You for the privilege to be here this morning. And uh, Lord, I thank You that at this time we can come to the Lord's table. Lord, be glorified as we continue to worship You. In Christ's name, Amen.